Really is good to see you here this morning. I invite you to turn with me to the uh, Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, chapter 8 of John's Gospel. We've reached the final sermon in our series, Beautiful No. We've been reflecting together on those things that Jesus tells us we ought not to do. Not so that we can show him just how much we love him, but that we might experience how much he loves us. So Jesus says, worry not. And doubt not, judge not, fear not. And now we come to John chapter 8, where I think Jesus has two gifts for us this morning. First, a gift of grace, and secondly, a gift of another, our final beautiful no. So let's look at this story, let's enter into this story this morning and see if we can't receive these gifts from him in these moments. We'll pick up in verse 2 of John chapter 8 where we read, Early in the morning, so the sun is rising and Jerusalem is waking up. A rooster crows and a dog barks and the city starts to come awake. We can imagine that market stalls are being set up and produce is being laid out for the day's customers. We can imagine children with sleep still in their eyes are entering into the streets to begin the day's play. We can imagine an old man standing on the street corner watching all this unfold as he picks his breakfast from his teeth. And we can imagine Jesus, we read in verse 2, who has come again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So despite the early hour, our large crowd has gathered. This is the 8.30 service. This is not you guys, right? He was here and you missed him, right? A large crowd has gathered and we can imagine them horseshoed, standing horseshoed around the teacher who sits. And Jesus is in their midst and they are leaning in and listening carefully to every word that he has to say to them. Some of them, no doubt, are, are curious. They've got up early to go and hear this man that they've heard so much about. Others perhaps are in a sense cautious, uh, unsure what to make of his claims that both seem to make sense of everything and yet also stretch the, the boundaries of belief. And others, I hope and trust as we would have with us this morning, others are convinced. Convinced and, and finding his words more life-giving to them than sleep. Now, we don't know what Jesus' topic was that morning. And I would love, I wish they'd had podcasts then, right? So that we could, we could listen in and hear. Perhaps he was talking about prayer. Perhaps he was talking about heaven or compassion or healing or grace. We don't know. But whatever the topic, he was soon interrupted. Commotion, noise, disturbance, as in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. So here come the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, those who copied and taught the law, the religious experts. They are righteous and holy men in their own eyes, if not in anyone else's. And as one, they have burst into the courtyard, brows furrowed, furrowed, full of indignation. And we read, struggling to keep her balance on the crest of this angry wave, comes a scantily clad woman. 
She has been caught, we read, in the very act of adultery. Moments before, as the city woke, she had been asleep in the arms of a man who wasn't her husband. And then a crash at the door yanked from this bed and marched through the streets by men the age of her father. As she stumbles, they stride, each step more accusing than the last, until they reach their destination and, and throw her in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus, where, verse 4, they said, the religious leaders said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Then verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So you see what these religious leaders are up to. They're not righteous men concerned about justice and holiness. Indeed, if they were, they'd have brought the adulterous man with them, because the law condemned him as well. Uh, No, they're, they're not concerned about that. They're simply trying to trap Jesus. She is just a pawn in their game. So in some smoke-filled room, they've come up with this devious dilemma, with this catch-22. Because if Jesus says, yeah, stone her, then he'll be contradicting the law of Rome, which told the Jews that they didn't have the right to execute anyone. And yet if Jesus says, don't stone her, he'll be contradicting the law of Moses, which did say that such a woman should be put to death. So either way, they'll have a basis to bring a charge against him, a basis to accuse him. We wonder, don't you wonder what the woman is thinking at this point? As she stands there with her feet bare and muddy and her hands tugging at her dress to cover her shoulders, she looks out and she sees a crowd, all eyes focused on her. Can you imagine the vulnerability of that moment? Some wide-eyed with curiosity, some narrow-eyed in in judgment. She turns from the crowd and sees sees the religious leaders and all their bluster and all their fury with their pursed lips and with their tense jaws and with rocks in their fingers ready to stone the lust out of her. She looks up perhaps and sees the temple. Remember where all this takes place, verse 2, in the courtyard of the temple? The temple, which is the place where you would go to make atonement for sin. The very place where you would feel most painfully aware of your failings and of your brokenness. Here she stands, and she'd no doubt been there before bringing sacrifice for her sin. But now she has no lamb and fears she's about to be sacrificed for her sins. But then, past the crowd, past the leaders past the temple, she sees someone else. She sees Jesus in verse 6, but she's not really sure what he's up to. Look at it with me. In the midst of it all, verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It's a bizarre move. It's a disarming move. In the midst of all the tension and all the drama, Jesus takes a knee and then pulling out his finger as a pencil... It starts to etch in the dust. The crowd sort of shuffles and crane their necks to see if they can see what he's writing. 
Religious leaders roll their eyes and look down to see the same. Imagine the woman's relief as for the first time that morning, all eyes are no longer on her. We stare down and we see what Jesus has written. And after a week of study, I can tell you what he wrote. You ready? We have no idea. (laughs) Theories abound. Some great and glorious that would really preach. Some super bizarre that we could really laugh at. But the bottom line is, we don't know. We, We don't know what it is that Jesus wrote. We don't know what to make of it. And apparently, the religious leaders don't really know what to make of it either. There's a pause, a silence. An exchange of bewildered looks and not knowing what to do, we read in verse 7 that they just keep on asking their question. They keep on repeating their same question again. They continued to ask him, what is it that we should do with this woman? Stone her or not? Moses or Rome? Whose side are you on? They ask again and again and again until Jesus replies. You see his answer there? He stood up. Stands up to the bullies. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Isn't that a reply such as only Jesus could give? They think they're so clever, they think they've got him trapped. And they have no idea who they're messing with. (laughs) Jesus, it's brilliant. He doesn't make light of her sin. Instead, he shines a light on their hypocrisy. Shines a light on their hypocrisy and says, Sure, if your life is free from sin, then have at it. And then, verse 8, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Again, nothing but silence in the air. Perhaps the woman inhales. Perhaps a ripple of agreement makes its way through the crowd. But then the silence is broken by the religious leaders. We wonder how they'll respond, but it comes in verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones first. Isn't that an interesting detail? They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones first. In response to Jesus' reply, Someone inhales as if to speak, and then no one speaks. And feet shuffle, and eyes look down, and then one by one we hear the silence broken as the rocks fall from their hands, land with a thud on the ground, and they turn and leave. They leave beginning with the greatest, those who had lived the longest, (laughs) those who were most aware of all the mistakes that they themselves have made. But extending to the youngest, because not one among us is in a position to throw that first stone. Not one among us, that is, apart from Jesus, verse 9. You see it there? Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now understand, this isn't a moment of relief. This isn't the the, the turning point for her. This is an ominous and threatening moment for her. Why? Because there she stands, a sinful woman with a sinless man and a pile of rocks. There she stands with the one who does have the right to pick up that stone 
and cast it. In the shadow of the temple, she knows that she is sinful and she knows of this man that he is not and that he has every right to condemn her. But instead, he straightens up and he looks her in the eye and he asks her, verse 10, a couple of questions. See him there? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus knows the answer to these questions, but he wants her to see it. And so she looks up, and she looks around, and she sees no one and says, verse 11, no one, Lord. She said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, grace and a beautiful no. Grace and a beautiful... No, look at me at verse 11. First, he speaks grace. No one has condemned you, he says. Then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. They can't condemn you, and I don't condemn you. They can't, but I don't. They have no right to. I have every right to. Yet, though they wanted to, I do not. Neither do I condemn you. In this place, the temple where the woman was so painfully aware of her sin, and in this moment, the most embarrassing and shameful time of her life, Jesus refuses to condemn her. Why? Because it's the grace of the gospel. She knew that she had no sacrifice for her sin. And she knew that she should be sacrificed for her sin. And yet Jesus said, I came to be sacrificed for your sin. She had no lamb to give to God. And so the lamb of God came to give himself to her. Jesus is the one who could pick up a stone. But he doesn't want to kill her. He wants to be killed for her. And that's the grace of the gospel. That Jesus has done everything So that we need to be condemned for nothing. Jesus has done everything so that we need to be condemned for nothing. And we ask ourselves this morning, have we received this gift of grace from him? I know many of you have, but we all need to. Because there isn't a person among us who's better than this woman. There isn't a person among us who haven't done things that we don't really want to be dragged into the streets. And into that shame and into that brokenness, Jesus speaks this word of of grace. So that we know that though one day we will stand before him alone. And that he will have the rocks to throw should he choose. He would have us know that he would rather offer forgiveness. That he doesn't want to kill you, he wants to be killed for you. And in this moment here, he offers grace. If you believe in this gospel, if you've experienced this grace, then you've tasted the freedom that comes from having your sins forgiven. If you're being drawn to that for the first time, then this is a spiritual reality that God is doing in your life. You didn't just have something strange for breakfast, all right? This is the Lord working in your heart to draw you to himself, to make you realize that, yeah, you're sinful like all of us in this room and that yes Jesus will be your savior if you'll just ask him to there's grace for you today that's what it means to to become a Christian to receive this grace that he offers but Jesus he isn't done yet 
Yes, he speaks a word of grace. But then also in verse 11, he speaks another word. Grace and then a beautiful no. Having said, neither do I condemn you, he says, see it there, go. And from now on, sin no more. Our beautiful no for the day is sin not. In this series we've seen, Jesus says, worry not. Don't be anxious about your life. Doubt not. You can believe these things are certain and sure. Judge not. Who are we to judge anyone? Fear not. I'm in control of all things. And now, sin not. Let your life be free from sin. Now, please catch the sweep of this verse. The logical flow of this verse. The order of this verse. Jesus doesn't say, sin no more and then I won't condemn you. Isn't that significant? He says, neither do I condemn you, therefore sin no more. In other words, obedience doesn't lead to grace. Grace leads to obedience. Grace changes everything. That's the order of the gospel life. That once you receive grace from his hand, you can then start to walk in obedience. Jesus is saying, I am enough for everything you need for salvation. I am enough, but once you have tasted my grace, will you not now leave your life of sin? Because do you not see what it's doing to your life? He looks this woman in the eye and he says, you know, your sin has left you near naked and ashamed in front of the crowd. And it's doing worse things to your soul, that emptiness, that sadness you feel inside. I don't condemn you. Grace is yours. So now leave this life of sin. Sin is like a cancer. It's like a a beast that grows inside. And it nearly killed you. But now, because of my grace, you can leave it behind. You can leave it behind. And if we ourselves have received this grace this morning, that's where the gospel starts, receiving his, his grace this morning, then we're also called to walk in this beautiful no. To follow him in joyful obedience. Are, are we doing that? Or are we holding on to the things of the old life? Are we allowing that cancer to grow? Are we giving that beast space? Um, let's lean into this and let me be as direct as I possibly can be about this. Let me be as direct as I possibly can be. Because... Um, Sin has a way of hardening our hearts. It has a way of hardening us so that things that should bother us don't bother us anymore. Um, So that we have this remarkable ability. I have this amazing ability to just not think about the things in my life that I know are displeasing to God. I just kind of hold them at arm's length. But Jesus is... um, moving into this space and kind of getting in our face and asking, what is the sin that you need to leave behind? What is your sin that you need to leave behind? What is it in your life? What cancer have you allowed to grow? What beast are you giving air? Now that you've tasted my grace, what is it that you need to leave behind? Perhaps it's something in your professional life. Someone in the office you know you've gotten too close to. Or perhaps just that culture of workaholism that you've really bought into. 
Perhaps it's not your professional life. Perhaps it's your, your personal life. A relationship that you've just allowed to get out of hand. Or a marriage that you've just sort of settled for that kind of quiet discontent. Or someone that this afternoon leaves service. You need to go and call them to apologize and, and make amends. Perhaps it's not your professional life or your personal life. Perhaps most dangerously it's in your, in your private life. In those things that are unseen and unknown by, by anyone but, but perhaps you. The way in which you've um, just capitulated in that battle for purity. Or the way in which you've allowed bitterness or, or pride to grow in your heart. Perhaps it's one of these things. Perhaps it's, it's something else. The reality is, for all of us though, it's something. It's something. Why? Because none of us are perfect yet. We're all a work in progress. So every single one of us can say, yeah, here's, here's the sin that in light of God's grace I need to leave behind. And Jesus would say, leave it. Do you see what it's doing to your life? <laughs> Do you see what it's doing to your life? Do you see how it's doing damage to your relationship with me? Damage to your relationship with others? Damage within your own heart and soul? Leave this cancer behind. Put this beast to death. We say, well, James, um, okay, sin not. It's not that easy. Right? I say, I know, right? Think I'm not struggling with this too, right? Um, and our woman says, you jokers have no idea. I had to go and break up an affair. Then I had to go and be honest with my husband. Then I had to live the rest of my life having been subjected to this kind of public humiliation. Don't talk to me about this not being easy, but let me tell you that it's worth it. <laughs> let me tell you that it's worth it. What is it that you need to leave behind? It will, by grace, be worth leaving behind. And we're called to bring our struggles into the light because the light is our friend. And at this church, you have at least two things. First, you have fellow strugglers. From the pulpit to the pew. Secondly, you have resources to come alongside and help with whatever it is that you're struggling with. You know there isn't a single problem? There isn't a single problem that you can't bring to the church, bring to us, and we'll do our best to walk alongside with you. It's interesting, when, when people do come uh, to, to see me or one of the other pastors or staff members uh, and they're struggling with sin, there's this, often this real hesitancy and this real shame as if they're going to be the first person who has ever struggled with this. And we are going to be like, what? You did, I cannot get out, right? Um, you need to be a little less impressed with your sin. You need to be a little more impressed with your Savior. And you need to bring your sin into the light so that he can heal it for you. So that he can heal it for you and he, and he will. Make this place, this temple, make this moment right now, the moment you decide to walk in this beautiful note, if you would like to receive either of these gifts, the gift of grace to become a Christian or 
the gift of this beautiful note to try and put sin behind, then I invite you after the service to come forward. Our pastors will be here and we'll pray with you and talk with you. And you know, we've had several people in each service bold enough to come forward. (laughs) Talk with us. uh, Let us pray for you. Let's think on what some next steps might be. If that's too big a step, and I, I understand, I mean, remember... You're in a room full of sinners, so you're in good company. But if that's too big a step, then email me, jamesmcclainpress.org. We'll talk about next steps from there. If you don't want to do either of those things, then let me ask you, what will it take? What will it take for you to receive the grace that Christ offers and for you to leave behind the life that's killing you? Because if you're struggling with things that you've been struggling with for a decade, you know what you're going to be doing in a decade? If you don't hear the Lord's call to come, to come, receive his grace and leave that life behind. In this series we've said, God pours his love out like rain from the heavens. It's the most torrential downpour you ever got caught out in in your entire life. And then we've seen him call us to put the umbrellas away. The umbrellas of of worry and doubt and judgment and fear and sin. The umbrellas that that stop us from experiencing his love. We've heard him call us into freedom uh, that we might uh, dance in the rain. Friends, know what I have said, but what Christ has said in, in his word. Neither do I condemn you. Go now. Leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we're in a moment to reflect upon your word to us and the grace that you offer us. Not grace that comes in response to obedience, (laughs) but grace that comes in response to sin. We stand as we are, near naked and ashamed in front of a crowd, receiving forgiveness from your hands, because that's the gospel. Now, Lord, as we do that, we we long for this grace to fuel us into this beautiful no, this life of obedience, where we leave behind those things that are so destructive to our walk with you, to our relationships with others, even to our own souls, leaving them behind by the power of your grace to walk in the the light and enjoy the rain. So, Father, I pray for for all of us, and especially those that you, by your Spirit, are convicting in a a special way just now. Uh, Those sins that have been so prolonged or those sins that have been so deep those things in our lives that we haven't been able to free ourselves of, Lord, today, would we hear your call to leave them behind? And would you give us courage? Give us courage. The courage that's needed to be honest with you, with others, with ourselves. The courage that's needed to walk in this beautiful no. Give us steel in our spines and iron in our guts that we uh, might be prepared to step into these hard places. And Lord, would we be a church where it's safe to do that? A church where um, sinners saved by grace show other sinners where to find grace. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.